Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American podcast. So, my guest for today is George. George, welcome to the podcast. I'm feeling your energy. I like the vibes. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carrie Ann. Thank you. It's good to be here to chop it up with you. All right. So why don't you tell the community of friends a little bit about who you are, Caribbean country you represent, what you do, all that good stuff. Yes. Um, my full name is George McCowman, and I am an artist and creative director based in San Francisco. And um, I recently had a book come out uh, called Illustrated Black History, Honoring the Iconic and the Unseen. And I hail from the country of Grenada. And I've been in the United States for most of my life, but I was raised the first decade of my life. I was in Grenada. And my mother and I moved to Brooklyn. I grew up in East Flatbush with all the rest of the West Indians in East Flatbush from 1980. Currently, I live in between San Francisco and Grenada. I, I split my time between both places. George, you know how many people want to be like you? I know. We're, <laughs> I know. Where we split our time in I the U.S. Living, I am living my dream and the dream of a lot of Carib people. Listen, that is the dream to split the time, you know, because like you, I, I don't know if I want to fully go back to Jamaica. I just want to be able to go back and forth as it suits yes. me. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Well, I love I, it. I work for myself, so I can do that. Uh-huh. We're going to get into the work you do for yourself. And like I said, I feel like we have a lot in common because I too moved to the US, not at 10, but at 14, but you know, around those formative years and moved into the East Flatbush area as well. I lived in the 90s uh, around that time. So it's it's so interesting how we all take similar patterns and drop in particular communities. So it's it's this thing that we all want to be connected. So Let's talk about what life was like when you moved to New York in the 80s. Ooh, okay. I, my mother and I got to Brooklyn uh, when I was eight years old. And let me tell you, it took me years to recover from the shock of moving from a, a Black country where everything I've ever known was my family and my community I've always been the majority to learning very quickly that the United States was not what I thought. And I think, I think a lot of immigrants have this awareness. When you arrive here, it's not what you've seen on television. It is not what you see in the movies. And I, I was a kid who was very aware. And I, I am a reporter also. And so that I've always had that aptitude where I... I've always been an observer from a very, very young age. I observe people and body language, and I learn a lot from what people both say or don't say. And so I remember just being kind of in shock. Um, I hated the weather because it was freezing, and I, I had no training of how to stay warm in cold weather. You know, uh, Grenada is pretty close to the equator. It's hot all the time. And so that's, that's one way of existing. But then you have this completely binary experience of being cold all the time and having to adjust yourself to what staying warm in this kind of weather feels like. Um, 
I'd never been around this many white people. And so that was a shock too. And my mother came up to the United States specifically for a better life. She was a newly single mother. My parents had just gotten divorced. And my our life with my father had been an adventure, a cinematic adventure. And so she just really wanted to move past all of that. And she was suddenly the sole guardian of, uh, of a small human being. Um, without the benefit of that many members of the family. And my mother's sister was also here with her family back in the days when you could sponsor someone. And, you know, I became a citizen relatively quickly. You know, I arrived at eight and became a citizen at 14 or 15. You know, it, it's just not that easy right now to to do that. And so I have a, a very positive immigrant experience as these things go. So many people don't have that. And so I want to honor that even the kind of immigrant experience I've had has been relatively tame. It was a shock. It took me years and years and years. And I was a, an only child in a giant family. I have a very, very large family. I was like, what is this place exactly? What is this America? And, and I'm still asking myself that question. Yes, we all are. But, you know, you brought up something that, you know, as part of the immigrant experience, something as simple as preparing for the cold weather, how to be in the cold weather. And I'll never forget the first time that I felt cold on my hands and I decided I was going to wash my hand in warm water and learned very quickly that you do not do that Mm -hmm, because it made mm -hmm. it worse. So it's like just Mm -hmm. the little things like that, adjusting to life in a new country Mm -hmm. when you're used to heat all year round and the Christmas breeze was more of a sweater and not. (laughs) (laughs) Christmas breeze was a sweater and not a full on ensemble of hat, Mm -hmm. scarf, all of this stuff. And, And even little things like making sure that your undershirt is tucked into your pants as opposed to leaving it so that there's a draft You know, just little things that you, as a human being, you have to learn on your own. You have to learn the hard way. It's the difference between, you know, being a toddler and being a teenager. And then, you know, you just kind of learn these things Mm -hmm. where the layers, like I didn't like wearing sweaters. So I would wear my short sleeve with a coat. And that also, that just made it worse because the cold, (laughs) the cold coat was against my frigid skin. And so it's just one of those things where I was constantly learning ways to stay warm. And my fingernails would turn purple. And it was just always difficult. Yep, I remember. And it didn't help that my first winter here was a really bad one in New York. Yeah. So. Oh boy, the adventures. So in terms of the just the adjustment from a climate and, you know, the people we're seeing. One of the things I know I really wanted to talk to you about was, you know, navigating the feelings of when you're in America and now you're immigrant or you're black or a variation of all these things. So talk mm-hmm. to me about that experience about blackness and the immigrant and, you know, the the tearing or the categorization that we didn't create, but others created for us to exist or not exist, depending on your view? 
This topic alone, I could talk to you about for hours. Because, um, you know, it's the foundation of a lot of the work that I do. And it's also the foundation of how I was able to do this book. Which is reconcile the fact that I was not born in this country, that I'm an immigrant, that I'm an American citizen. I am originally from someplace else, but I've lived in this country most of my life. I am an American. I'm a very proud American. Um, but I've always had an outsider's view of race that has been basically defined by the difference of understanding the difference between race in the Caribbean and race in America. And they're, they're really not the same thing. And it's a very different kind of threshold to understand. And, you know, we're from colonized countries, which means generally in all of the countries in the Caribbean, some form of destabilization of a European country coming in and taking what is not theirs and bringing enslaved Africans and decimating the local indigenous population, and then leaving the countries they terrorized a mess. And so there's no Caribbean country that has benefited from this. But all of us were born into that system. And what colonialism leaves, I think, that is separate and different from American racism is it teaches its citizens to hate themselves. And you get these divinations of colorism and a focus on hair, straight hair and lightening the skin. And I think in a lot of ways, it's more insidious. You know, America has other states that you can go to, you can get in your car if you want to leave Kentucky. As you're ostracized there, you can get in a car or get on a plane and go to San Francisco or go to New York, you can move and you can change your circumstance. And there's a lot of people that benefit from that. When you live in a country like Grenada, Jamaica, you're there and you're just there. And so you have to deal with people's judgments. You have to deal with a lot of small town nonsense with people just in your business all the time everybody telling you what you need to be doing, people having to hide who they are, people bleaching their skin. You just, you have a lot of this stuff and there's no, there's no out. And so you just have to sit and face it and deal with it. And that is, that is really difficult. And with American racism, I really think one of the the stark features of racism in America that is different than other places is so much violence against black people that we are targeted and there is violence there is is an active desire to kill harm remove that police target us that white people feel in some parts of the country that black people are still in service to them in 2022 that you have corporate entities that have been designed to keep black people from advancing to match their contemporaries' advancement, that there are real estate systems designed to disenfranchise Black homeowners, that you have food companies 
not advertising, not having Black people representative of this population, that is more systematized and is more violent. And in the Caribbean, it's just us dealing with the mess that these European countries left for us. And then our engagement with each other to try and figure out a way to attend to it. One of the toughest topics I've had to try to address on the podcast, and I've seen it, is like cousins warring, right? So the cousins are Black Americans, Black Caribbeans, and Blacks from Africa, all kind of beefing, you know, because, you know, think of your family, you know, auntie so-and-so kids don't talk to uncle so-and-so kids around something that we share. But like you said, it's like we've just experienced it differently. So what you just described and how Black Americans experience racism versus what's happening in the Caribbean. And um, yes, there's an argument that most African countries, they may not have been slaves, but they are still having to experience some level of colonialism in Mm -hmm. some form or fashion, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so how do you navigate a space where you might find someone who talks about, from a Caribbean perspective, how Black Americans are, or how Black Americans say Caribbeans act like they're better, or whatever that conversation is? How do you navigate that space? Because that is a conversation. If somebody wants to get some Twitter activity, they could just say this, and it's like a whole firestorm. So how do you navigate that? Well, I look at the origin. It is colonialism. I've always been clear growing up that this is why these divisions exist. You know, um, and whenever I'm in Grenada, I always reflect to Grenadians that they are harder on Grenadians than other people. And it should be the other way around. I think that we as Caribbean people, we are too judgmental of each other. Um, and, and I don't think it, it helps. It doesn't help anyone. I come from a upwardly mobile middle-class family, successful. Like I've always been the black sheep in my family. I'm the only person amongst all my cousins that does not own his own house. You know, growing up, it was drilled into us to not let the American system do to us as it did to black Americans. And I think even though our parents were being helpful and were teaching us a lesson, what it did is it created an internal class system within the Black community. Um, That has really been damaging. It absolutely has not been great because I grew up in my home with my family telling me that we were not Black Americans. (laughs) And, you know, I had to kind of declutter my brain from that uh, once I went out on my own because you know we it was that we have our land we come from places where where people own their own land own their own homes and there was some judgment around that and a lack of understanding of the the truth of history and the context of why that is you know and my family's evolved so no one no one says that anymore thankfully but it really was like it was something that took a hold in me that I, I think has created a kind of class division between Black Americans, West Indians, and Africans. 
But I have to tell you, I think that is really changing. I have seen this wholesale embracing of the diaspora because I think everyone's understanding that just we as a community are f***ed if we don't band together. And this is what colonialism did, is it created distinctions and divisions. And it created basically the, the class system that is ruining England. You know, we're, we're watching the UK come apart because it's so entrenched in its bullshit of there being a strata of human beings, that there are people who are better than others. Um, and this, this monarchy that continues to have too much attention placed on them, but we're just watching that unravel. And I think 2020 just shook, and this is like, you know, red table talk. It shook Black people awake. And it let Africans know they're coming for you too. Doesn't matter if you're a doctor or a scientist, if you're Nigerian and have done every and have every degree. Nope, the police are going to pull you aside and choke you too. Um, and it let West Indians know it just pulled everything apart. And I'm watching and listening, and I have friends from all corners of the world. There is an, an attentiveness to us being in conversation with each other that I did not see 10 years ago. You've made a good point because um, the, his name is not coming to me, but the incident where the police officer went into the wrong apartment and killed that person, he's of St. Lucian heritage, right? Uh-huh, so to, uh-huh. to the point where, you know, it don't matter if you're the good immigrant or whatever. It doesn't matter know, if you're the good immigrant, you can do everything right yeah. and they're still going to kill you. <laughs> So you mentioned something which I think is very important where you said, you know, your family is involved and most of our families are involved. I I would like to think we're at least getting there because there's a knowledge now or understanding of history that we now understand um, because it's now public that in New York State, we have one set of history books, but in other states, they have another set of history books. So we now know that history is edited based mm-hmm. on where you live. Yes. And I think the history that's coming out that is allowing for a greater understanding of the plight of the Black diaspora. So whether you're from the continent, UK, US, Caribbean, South America, wherever you are in the world, yes. there's a history that was hidden from us and now we're having a greater understanding. So Absolutely. tell me the role in terms of how Black or Caribbean history is told or isn't told? Well, I also think in general, we as human beings, we don't know enough of our history. I I just think generally, you know, because I'm spending more time in Grenada, I have been really kind of looking for more of a comprehensive telling of Grenadian history. And it's impossible to find, you know, Grenada became an independent country again in 1970, I want to say. And I was trying to find books, and there, there are a few, but they basically stop at, at some point. And there's so much of the history that is layered and complex and, frankly, Shakespearean, because it's always drama. There's, there's never not been drama. And so it's not even just a series of dates. It's like a lot of people working against their own interests. And it's a lot of drama. It's a lot of like, you know, people 
sleeping with people who are not their spouses and causing unrest and causing drama and just, but it's hard to find that history because it's not archived. It's not written. And we have a way of telling each other stories that are fortifying, but it's not historical. It's more personal. And so it's hard to find, but I think there's more of an interest. And I know that my generation is really looking my father was involved in a lot of political movements, a lot of political unrest, and he died five years ago. And, and he told me a lot of stories that I was like, oh, I had no idea that you were involved in that, or I had no idea that you were a part of this. And, and it's just more of an incentive for us to tell our own stories, that we still are kind of waiting for permission to reclaim how we as Caribbean people move through the world. We are not Europeans. And I argue with members of my family often because they think that the parliamentary system is better. And basically what they're saying is that they don't want the African side of us to assert itself, that we will fall into unrest if we embrace the African side of who we are. And I, I fundamentally disagree with that. But then, you know, there are signs of progress. There's more of an, an attentiveness to us and our history and our way of being. And we still have to reconcile the European and the African sides of us because that is what it is. You know, it took me a while to realize it wasn't until my 40s that I realized that I lived in an African country. It, it just ne had never even occurred to me. And I remember going home to visit my grand my grandmother at her 90th birthday and walking into the market that is the same market across the African diaspora and watching how we as Black people relate to each other. That is the same everywhere in the world. And just being like, oh, I live in an African country. <laughs> it, never, it never occurred to me. And, and that's how I refer to Grenada now. I mean, and it confuses people. But what I'm saying is that those African traditions that they tried to strip out of us are still there. They, they don't die. They, they don't they die. Don't, we don't we just anywhere. pass it down effortlessly to each other. And all it's, my African friends, like, you know, I have a few Nigerian friends and, and Senegalese and Sierra Leone, and they, they call the Caribbean Little Africa. It would be a shock to my aunts and grandparents' generation to know that we are embracing that because that is everything that I think has terrified a lot of the older generation. But it's there in the music, it's there in our dancing, it's there in our customs, it's there, it's there in carnival, it's just there. And so why not embrace it? I know I live in an African country. Yeah, for that generation, it was embedded. It was ingrained in them. They were terrified to be anything but proper British citizens, yes. you know? Which is so such nonsense to say out loud right now. It's like yeah. it's embarrassing. I'm I'm embarrassed that we so many of us still cling to that. Not that we used to, because that's the way it was. But today, there's still so many people that would rather be proper British citizens than be the black people that that we are. I think part of that is, you know, the, the same way we talked about the selection of what history gets included in history books. You mm -hmm. know, it's also the selection of what we get to see on media yes. 
and what's reflected. And you don't want to be these people. You want to be like these people. Yes. And so you you just made a comment about permission, you know, how we move through the world as Caribbean people. Like, talk to me a little bit more about that, because in some ways people be like, Caribbean people, they're so proud. You know, we we gallivant like we own the world, we party. But if we're really honest, there's a way that's it's it's right under the surface. It's and it and it is just right under the surface, and you wouldn't you wouldn't see it at first, Mark. You know, but it is it is there. I mean, we are assimilationists. We totally we make ourselves fit in. We are one of the immigrant communities that is really really good at assimilating, and I think that's one of the reasons that we have this, you know, weird cockiness about coming to this country and just kind of settling in because we are, we're crafty. We are strategists. We basically compare American society to our society and we see the cracks and we know where we can insert ourselves and just kind of, you know, we know how to utilize the school system to our benefit. So is it assimilation or is it survival? And I think there's a part of that is, you know, the generation that came here in the 70s and the 80s, maybe as far they, they had to figure out how to survive. They, yes. Really, I give my mother and her sisters and our family all the credit for that. Because what my mother was able to do in a few years, I sit and I think about it. I am astonished by how much she was able to be successful on her own terms inside of the United States, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, she put herself through college. Like I was a latchkey kid because my mother went to college because she needed that degree to advance herself. And my mother worked for the UN for several decades and was really successful, owned her own home, you know, her retirement home was a palace in, in Florida. And she worked really hard to, to define that and to be clear about that. Um, my mother passed away last year and she and I spoke a lot about her own evolution and what she had to do to be clear with herself about what, what she wanted. But she never lost. She never wavered. It's the other thing about West Indians. We play the long game. We will deny ourselves those shoes. We will deny ourselves, you know. And, and I was, my family also let us know that that was also the difference between us and Black Americans, that we would restrain ourselves from purchasing things we couldn't afford in order to save up for that house in five years. My family was always really clear about that they were playing the long game in their success and that they weren't going to let anyone get in the way of that. And they encouraged us, my cousin's generation, to be. So when I decided that I didn't want to buy a house, I, that I wanted to move to San Francisco, that I wanted to be an artist, that I, I knew basically I was getting no support from them. And that's the other thing, too. It's like they're really clear about what their expectations are. And if you don't meet that, they will cast you out. <laughs> I mean, first, let me just say condolences um, on you. the loss of your mom. Um, Thank you. 
Yeah. Um, you said something else that kind of comes back to what we talked about before, this concept of being latchkey kids. It's very mm-hmm. American because very. there's no, at never one point in my life growing up in Jamaica was I ever home alone. There was yeah. no such thing as no, being and, home and, alone. Yeah. And in the Caribbean, you know, I, I have a family compound. And so five generations move through a house, including with my 99-year-old grandmother, who is perfectly fine, by the way, <laughs> is strong and supple. And, and we know she is still alive and thriving because she lives in a house with family. And she doesn't have any caretaker outside of people that she knows and loves and trusts. And we know that if she was in a nursing home, she would have died a long time ago. And so that way that we as West Indians work, that frankly, a lot of other cultures, you know, it's really America and Europe where this idea of, you know, self-sufficiency and individuality and you, you put old people in nursing homes and you, you know, you, you keep yourself from your family because they're going to weigh you down. That does not exist in the Caribbean. You know, grown ass people in their 20s and 30s still live with their parents. And that's that's just the way it is. And I think it's a really beautiful thing. I mean, I, I am not so American that I don't recognize that this is only a benefit. And and it is different from the narrative that Americans tell. It's different from the narrative that Americans define as success. Yes, we've. We've seen how the extended family has gone by the wayside, whereas for a very long time, a lot of us thrive in an extended family. I grew up in a house where my grandmother, my mother, my uncles, and some cousins, we all lived in the same house. All and live so, in the same house, yeah. You know, it made for a richer experience as Absolutely. part of my childhood. Yes. So that's that's a really good point. So let's go to the work. So we've talked about your experience. and. I, I don't want to delay talking about the body of work that you have coming out, your your work as an artist. Talk to us a little bit about that. So I'm talking to you from my studio, uh, my art studio, where there is currently a film crew making a documentary on the making of this book, Illustrated Black History. And so I've been talking for the last two days about the process of how I got to this point. And even though I said I didn't have much support from my family um, on this path, there were a lot of people who did support me. And so I was supported. And and so it's not a slight on my family at all. I think it's a path that my family did not necessarily understand. Um, And so there's no, I have no um, animosity about that. But I I just kind of had to figure it out. Before I declared myself as an artist six years ago, I have, I run a design studio. And so that means that my company, my business is to define the visual identity of companies, places, things, products. And I mean products as intangible products, not what the tech industry calls products. And I I really, I kind of learned how to create stories for other people. And then when I decided that there was an emerging artist on the inside, my focus became telling my own stories. 
And that kind of launched me into a stratosphere where I knew it was very ambitious what I was attending to, that I could literally tell any story and I could do it under my own steam. I live in San Francisco and in addition to having, and, and I totally get this from my Caribbean background, you know, that in living color joke of, you know, we have 10 job. <laughs> I have 10 job. <laughs> it is natural for me to do this. My friends are often confused by how I'm able to do it. But then when friends come to Grenada and visit and meet with my family, they're like, oh, I understand where you get this from. I said, no, I'm an anomaly out here in San Francisco. But when you land in Grenada and you spend some time with my family, we are all like this. And we we call it the hot foot. When (laughs) When your foot's so hot, you can't sit down in one place. My cousins always say... George, you have the hot foot. And it is it is true. My brain is always working. It is always active. Even when I'm resting, I'm thinking about the things that I want to do five years from now. And because I've taught myself the agency of my choices, meaning that I don't ask for anyone's permission to do what I'm doing as a designer, as, uh, as an artist, I have all the tools to do it. So why would I need to vet it with anyone? Um, And that's just kind of like my view of that. And where I get that from is a family. I was, I was describing this earlier of people who own their own land, have a deep connection to the land, have their own building on that land and are really contented. And so I know what human happiness looks like. And in this country, there's always this like narrative of like, you have to search far and wide and go over there to find your happiness. And that is not my vantage point. That's not my perspective. That's never been what I have thought. I know that happiness is just right here. And if I'm not happy, then there is something I need to change to discover that. Absolutely. Um, I've been on a similar journey because earlier this year, my father passed away. So it was just like Mm. getting to a place of my condolences to you. Thank you. It's, it's this thing when your parents, their mortality is right in your face and you have to deal with life. And what am I really doing? Nothing like your parents' death to make you rethink everything you know about life and yourself, everything. And my my parents died within a five-year period of each other. So I've had a really concentrated time to basically swim out in the deep end of this. Yep. Yeah. It's similar. My grandparents, my grandmother died 2017, 2016, then my grandfather. And then, so it's like all of these life-changing events that push you to okay, what are you really doing? Let's get hyper-focused. And like you said, like, do I need to business about what them people over there so say or mm-hmm. kind of focus on what I really feel as joy and be confident to say, you know what? Contentment is an apathy. It mm-hmm. is like, I'm just, I'm happy right here. I'm good. Yeah. And each time I feel like I'm doing more, and that more isn't a more from within, but a more from external 
absolutely direction to do more it's like i feel that urge to just like "Mm, no i don't want to do it it's that Mm -hmm. inner child saying no don't want it don't want it yeah so um i i can definitely identify with that so this work that's out it features black caribbean historical figures what was going through your mind as you decide to select who was going to be in the book? Well, the the book is about American history, but as we as Caribbean people know, we are right up in all of that history. And the middle passage of passing from Europe to Africa through the Caribbean countries to America, to the Americas, has brought food, culture, moors, music. It has brought brought all of this stuff. And it's an active conversation in my life. I, I know quite a few Caribbean people. I've been talking with a few friends about creating a show, basically, that profiles how the Caribbean has really affected and defined some aspects of not just black culture, but American culture overall. And we don't think enough about, we, we tend to just forget about the Caribbean, but there's so much, you know, um, a friend of mine, a white friend of mine was telling me about reading uh, Chris Blackwell's uh, book uh, that he just put out, who is the creator of uh, Island, Island Records. And he was born and raised in Jamaica, a Jewish from a Jewish family that emigrated. And in the book, he was outlining basically the origins of hip hop and the, the sounds of hip hop that originated in Jamaica and that went up to New York. And, you know, that's a kind of personal story that is at the bedrock of one of the most dominant music forms on the planet. And most people don't know that. There is this mythical story about hip-hop just originating in, in New York, poof, and then suddenly taking, taking the planet by storm. But there is an origin point. There's so much of Southern cuisine that is West Indian in origin that is just not, it's not part of the foodways conversation. It's not part of food stories. And it tends to any food about the Caribbean is part of this reductive, dumb discussion about jerk chicken and roti and goats and that's oh, and fried plantains. And that's it. I mean, what people and this is this was I love history. What people forget, I, I, I don't say this often before people, you know, interpret it as I'm saying the Caribbean is best, but the the history is still there that the Caribbean was the laboratory in which slavery and everything else was tested before it was brought to the US or to and the Americas. Is it this we were the laboratory for colonialism and the system of slavery. Like it was tested in the Caribbean first. <laughs> So they had perfected it by the time they landed in the southern um, southern states, uh, and that's why it was so systematized so quickly. And I learned a lot of this a few years ago when I went to the 
um, the twin museums of the Business of Slavery Museum and the Lynching Memorial in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, which I recommend everyone go to. It just lays out the business of basically why America is a superpower, the origin of America as a superpower, and how just basically everyone collaborated. The church collaborated. That's, that's one of my favorite things to tell my family is, you know, my family, like so many Caribbean families, are so devout in their European Judeo-Christian religion. And I, my response every time, I'm a deeply spiritual person. I grew up in the church. Um, the only reason I went to church recent, you know, in recent years was my grandmother's devotion to, to her Episcopalian church and my devotion to her. But I am always clear with my family members who spout Bible and verse to me that this is not our religion. Nice try, but no. <laughs> This is not our religion. This is a religion that was given to us, forced, and that we have, I mean, we've certainly taken it and made it better. It is much more soulful than it actually is. <laughs> it is, you know, you go to church in the Caribbean, let me tell you, it's not like that in America. It is, it is a show and it's not, it's not gospel, it's not, but it is, a, you leave church feeling good. And, and what the Caribbean and what Grenadians have done with the religion is a really beautiful thing. But I'm just like, this is not our religion. I mean, you've, boy, you said a lot. And it's... Or it, was, his... it was given to us, and we should know that. You know, if, if you, I'm not countering anyone's faith no, or no, anyone's no. belief. I'm supportive of that. I believe in spirituality. I think organized religion has been mostly a blight. On, on human existence because it just creates division and it just isn't great for everyone's psyche, um, this burden of, of religion. But I think spirituality is as human as we are. And I'm a deeply spiritual person. I believe in a higher power. We, we are not here by accident. But this idea that religion allows people to judge other people and tell everyone that they are less than dirt because they're not doing this or they're not doing that or they're, they're a woman or they're gay. I'm just, I'm just like, no, shut up and go away. I'm just like, get out of my face. So I won't dwell on it, but it's, it's like if we go back even to before re the religions were established, you know, I just think it's a natural human tendency to, to try to categorize and to judge and to deal with what's different. It, it's, it's just a human tendency, but it's a not going to dwell on it. absolutely is <laughs> human. And, and religion is a human tendency. tendency. Yeah. It, it absolutely is. And I, I don't, and, and the organization of that is also a human. We create systems out of our beliefs. And so, of course, that, that exists. But I see the damage that the church has done now where it is the dominant form of culture in so many countries. The church is the dominant culture in the Caribbean, and, and it is in Grenada. It is the largest institution, like everything passes through the church. And let me tell you, a lot of not church-like things are going on there too. <laughs> well, you are, you are very right that the church is far from perfect. And I think, you know, 
that's a whole other episode yes, but yes, i yes. i want to 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 focus on um before we wrap up the artwork what people should expect feel or how they should think of our history in the way that you've presented it in this book mm-hmm. what i wanted to show with this book is that black people have been everywhere all along all the time throughout all of history we have just been there. This is the thing that has, I think, really touched so, so many of us, is that we have believed that we have not been a part of the infrastructure of the advancement of the human race, that America specifically has done a really great job of making Black Americans feel like we are not a part of everything that is good about this country. And I have received, this book has been out for a week and a half now, and I have received so many notes, heartbreaking, beautiful, poignant letters from people who received a note from a woman who told me that um, she's in her 60s. And she said, if I had this book when I was a little girl, I would feel differently about myself right now. And it's something that we as a Black people, we have defined a kind of supernatural way of attending to how much sludge this country has thrown at us. We basically throw it back as art. We are the most expressive people in this country. We have disproportionately defined American culture. Like we are the dominant culture in America is the exports of the black community for such a small uh, quote unquote minority. I'm sorry. We just, make all the good shit in our culture. <laughs> we really do. And we've never gotten our due. It's like, you know, the, the phrase like, you love Black culture, but you don't like Black people. It's so, it's so common and it's so true. And what I wanted to show is that we've been part of the fabric of everything. And there are quite a few people in this book that are of Caribbean origin because that is also what we don't think a lot about. You know, that there's so many celebrities, there's so many of our pioneers that are of West Indian origin, that we have been a part of uh, what is great about this country, that we have been a part of the, the strata and the layering of all the good things that we take for granted um, in our culture, that we, that we actually do take for granted, um, that there's so much that, that we uh, contribute just by being and that this is a collection of just a small collection of the people that have defined the greatness of our country. And that is what I want everyone to know is that we're pretty amazing. <laughs> we're just, we're just amazing. Thank you for that. Um, on another episode, we'll dissect why that is the case mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. there was an erasure of the identities or you know not necessarily separating but that's a whole other conversation yes, i want to have yes with you. yes yes but i want to thank you for just like i said i knew this was going to be a great conversation i know some audience members go have questions but that's good have, questions, questions is good there are a lot of questions um <laughs> where can people find you <laughs> so my um public name is my studio name it's mccalman co my last name is mccalman and then co for company it also means community. It also means collaboration because I work very collaborative 
lately. I work with a lot of people. I do a lot of different things. And I, and I love all of it. That's why I do. I, I am really fortified and excited about what I, what I do. I, I run a design studio and I'm also a full-time fine artist. And it's a very West Indian thing where I just, I make the time, I do it. I work seven days a week. I love it. So it's McCalman Co. on Instagram, McCalman Co. on Twitter, McCalman Co. on uh, Facebook. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Wish you all the success with this book and your work and your design studio. I need to talk to you about that. I wouldn't be a West Indian if I didn't slide of that. Of course, in here. you gotta like, slide, slide it in, slide it in, <laughs> slide in, Carrie Ann. Good, so, good to talk to you. Yes, for sure, for sure. And as I love to say at the end of every episode, walk good. Walk good. Walk good. Walk good. You've been listening to Carry On Friends, a show about the Caribbean American experience, produced by Breadfruit Media. We post a new episode every two weeks on Tuesday. And if you're looking to learn more, buy our merch, or sign up for a newsletter, check out carryonfriends.com. Or find us on all social media platforms at Carry On Friends. Carry On Friends.